Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I'll go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now flip over to John chapter 4. And we'll have it up here if you don't get to it quickly. John chapter 4, beginning, or just reading verse 35. Jesus says, Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, who is our righteousness, our Redeemer, our great friend and comforter. He is the way by which we can stand before you with boldness and confidently say, thank you, Lord, for all that you have given us. He is the way through which we can ask even one tiny thing, that is to give us wisdom, Lord, as we approach your scriptures. Humble us under your word, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. I know I've told you uh, the last time that I stood before you that uh, we would be looking at what it means for us when Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, that's been our other passage that we've been dealing with, Matthew 16, when he said that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. I told you that we'd be moving on to that. And, and that's what I intended to go the last time I talked to you, but I felt I needed to linger a little bit longer on this command that he gives us here in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. So that, that's what I did last week, or the last time I spoke to you. And, and I thought again that this time, that's what I would do. I'd be moving on to the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Um, but you remember in, in Acts when Paul wanted to go and, and preach the gospel in Asia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go? You know, I kind of—it's loosely kind of like that for me. I feel a little, little, little restricted. I feel like—I mean—we're going to get to chapter 16. We're going to get back and finish our text there. I promise, because it's important. I mean, all of it is important, but I feel like we have more work to do here, and for the time being, at least, I feel like I'm going to linger here at least for today, and maybe next week. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> so I apologize for setting up those expectations about where we're going and then kind of changing it up all. Y'all just roll with me, all right? Just, you know, be flexible with me, okay? So, you know, we're in this series. I've, been, I've called it Sent. We're a church that has been sent to the world, a church that is filled with people who are sent into the world to spread the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. So Jesus, he has sent us on a mission. He's given us this mission. He said, go and make disciples, right? He said, go and make disciples. It's in the text that we read this morning, verse 19 and 20. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So this morning, and for the next, well, however long it takes, I want to look at a disciple-maker's heart. That's important. I think it's a very crucial aspect of the mission that Jesus has given us to go and make disciples. If we don't have the right heart, we cannot expect to be effective in this 
mission. In fact, we will deceive ourselves into thinking that we are even on mission at all when we aren't on mission. We won't be making disciples at all. You know, you can deceive yourselves into thinking that you're doing good when you're not. What did Paul say about love in 1 Corinthians chapter 3? He said, if I, I can do all these things, if I have not love, I'm, I'm doing nothing. I can give my body to be burned. I can give everything I have to the poor. I can do all this stuff. If my heart's not right, it profits nothing. You can give your tithes. And you, sure, you've helped the church, but you haven't gained a thing. Amen. You don't have the right heart. You haven't accomplished anything. So it's important that we have the right heart. We have a disciple maker's heart or we can be on mission all day and still miss the mark. Right? Specifically this morning, I want to try to draw your attention to what is a, a very common but often overlooked and seldomly talked about problem of Christian blindness. Christian blindness. Before I wade too deeply into those waters, I do want to spend a few minutes seeing if I can give you an idea. And what I mean by that is a, a fuller picture of God's heart toward making disciples. You know, it's one thing to know a fact, to know a detail. It is altogether something different to have understanding of a situation. I can tell you that God is passionate about making disciples. And if you accept that what I say is a fact, then you know a fact. You have learned something is a, a fact. But what I intend to do over the next few minutes is to try to put some meat on that bone, if you will, to try to add some detail and some intricacy and some, some, uh, some meat to that fact. Um, so if I can make the case that God is, in fact, passionate about making disciples, about turning lost people into found people, turning lost sheep into His flock, children of wrath into children of God, if I can make the case that He is passionate about that, then it brings His command to us to go and make disciples. It brings that command into much greater focus. And on the flip side of that, it brings our failure to pursue that command into greater focus. And that, this point is important because later when I talk to you about Christian blindness, I don't want you to brush me off because God is passionate about this stuff. Amen. The only place that I can start, or that I can think of to start when making this case about God's heart toward the lost is to go to the very beginning. <laughs> what a good place to start, right? In the beginning. Genesis 1.27, God tells us that He made all of us, all of humanity in His own image, right? So I could spend all day talking about what that means, about the implications of it. But I just, I just kind of want to give you a little glimpse of what it means. So for those of you who have children, and even remarkably and miraculously for those of you who have adopted children, you, you know how sometimes when you look into your child's eyes, sometimes uh, you see yourself looking back at you? I don't know, uh, it's the expression on their face, maybe the way they're looking at you, uh, just how they cut their eyes at you, but there's something about it, and you look at them and you think, I recognize that, I have seen that somewhere before, in the mirror. That's a, 
that's just a hint. That's just a little, a little hint of what it's like to be made in someone else's image. It's not like an exact copy, but you see it. You can see it. You know what I'm saying? You can, you can see it. It's a loose idea. You know, we have to be clear. All of God's people everywhere, they are God's creation. All people everywhere are God's creation. And God cares very much about his creation. We can see it in Genesis. And this is, this is part of God's heart. This is part of his passion towards his creation, his passion towards us, not just towards Christians, but towards all of his creation. Did you know, have you realized that the very first emotion ever recorded in Scripture is God's delight in his own creation? God's delight in the handiwork of his own breath, his own, his own handiwork. He said it and it was, and the Bible says, God said it was good and very good. Now don't, don't just move past that. Don't just read that and just gloss over it. I mean, this is God, Amen. the creator of everything, the man who is, the man, the being who is totally sufficient in himself. You got to think about who God is in the Trinity. He is complete and whole, utterly sufficient in himself. He needs and wants for nothing. All right? There is total unity, total completion in the Trinity. And he looks at what he has made and said, man, that's pretty good. I like that. (laughs) That's good. He delights in it. Just like any of you would create something and make something, you make a perfect meal and you say, man, that's good. Or you build something with your hands and you think, "Ah, look what I have done. Look at that, I did that. You delight in it and you want it to be cared for and handled with care. My dad built a motorcycle one time, probably several times. How many motorcycles did you build, dad? Three. And he wanted them all to be handled with care. I mean, you know, I'm just, you build things and you, they're yours, they're your baby. You want them to be handled with care. You love them. There's an attraction to them. God is attracted to his creation. He loves it. He loves it. But again, we must be clear about it. God loves his creation and all people are his creation, whether they are born or unborn as of yet, but nowhere in Scripture are the lost ever referred to as his children. That is a term that is reserved for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Ephesians 2 and 3 tells us that outside of Jesus Christ, we are by nature the children of wrath. That means that we are born into sin. We are created by God. We are loved by God. We are loved by Him. We rebelled against Him. Just like a son that has run away. Separated from Him by sin. And so we are children of wrath. And so what did He do? What did this Father who loves His creation, this Creator who loves His creation so much, what did He do? You know the story. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who did God love? Who did he love? The world. Not just his own, right? Not just, not just his children, but the world. All of creation. He loved those children of wrath. Look at the language of the text. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him could then become... Whosoever believed in him could then be saved. Whosoever believed in him could then have everlasting life. They didn't have it before. 
so that they could have it. They didn't have it before. He loved the world, those who, the children of wrath. He died for a world that despised and rejected him, that wounded and abused and executed him so that any one of those children of wrath might, who might believe in Jesus, who might believe in him, any one of those people who might become his disciple, a follower of his, would be called, called sons of God, children of God, and could have eternal life. This is why he came, so that we who rebelled, even though we deserve death, we could have a path to life. That's Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The ungodly. You know, people who are well don't need a physician. Didn't Jesus say that? Who needs a physician? The sick. Amen. While we were still uh, sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. Amen. And to what end? What was the result? Why did he do that? What was the whole point of it? No one wants to die in vain. If you're going to die and pay the ultimate sacrifice, you want it to accomplish something. You want there to be, there to be a meaning in it. You want it to be a worthwhile outcome. What could possibly justify the death of the Lord of all creation, the spotless Lamb of God? Well, well he told us in John 3, 16, so that whosoever would believe on him would not perish, Amen. because that's what's going to happen if you don't, but have everlasting life. Church, I can't say it any better than Scripture already has. Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the sons of God. Jesus died so that we all who were and all those who still are the children of wrath could become the children of God. To put it another way, he died so that we could become lovers of God, Amen. followers of Jesus, Amen. disciples. Do you think he cares about the lost sheep? Amen. Yes, and as if that weren't enough, you remember from verse 18 that we read earlier, at the very end of his physical time on earth with his disciples, Jesus threw all of his authority behind that mission. We've covered that. You know, when kings and pharaohs of old wanted to demonstrate their greatness and their rule of their authority, they built great pyramids and they conquered great lands and they built huge castles and it took them decades to do it and thousands of soldiers and thousands of slaves and workers and all the resources of their kingdom. But no matter what, it was great and the greatness of it was great to use biblical language. But what did Jesus do when it came time to put his stamp on his authority and to declare Declare, all authority is mine. He said, go and make disciples. Amen. Amen. Undeniably great. He could have built the greatest temple. He could have conquered the earth in a split second. But he said, go and make more followers of me. Make more worshipers of me. Do you think he's not passionate about this? Amen. When he says, make disciples, you think he doesn't care about that command? See, we get so wrapped up in the thou shalt nots. We're more concerned about the thou shalt nots than we are about making disciples. And that's my point this morning. We'll get there. You see how much emphasis and glory that God has placed on the mission of making disciples. God loves his children, and every parent loves his children with a, a very special and abiding love, and that's no different with God, except that God's love for his children is infinitely more special and infinitely more perfect and infinitely more eternal. The problem is that not everyone is one of God's children. Mm -hmm. 
And yet God still loves the whole world. He loves whole of creation. And he does not want any of them to perish. Ezekiel 33.11 tells us that God takes absolutely no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us that God wishes that none should perish and that he desires that all should uh, find repentance. I want everybody to reach repentance. You rebelled. I want you to come back. And so I've made a way. God's heart is for saving the whole world. For God so loved the world. Church, God's heart is for saving all of creation. He loves His creation. He sees them, every single one of them. Have you heard the song, His eye is on the sparrow? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and yet not one of them falls to the ground except uh, apart from your Father? Are you not worth far more than a sparrow? No eye has seen the things that He has in store for us. He loves His creation. He sees them, every single one of them. And look, He loves His children. He loves His children. Oh, the love He has for me and you. The things, the eternal, glorious, wonderful things He has in store for us. We, we haven't even imagined it. We haven't comprehended the things that He has in store for the, the, His children, the ones that, that love Him. But the thing is, you cannot love Him apart from being His child. And He wishes that all his children he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked that's why he sent his son that is why he died on the cross that is why he rose from the grave that is why the veil was rent that is why he swung wide the heavenly gates it was to make a way where there was no way it was to say to every lost child of wrath come unto me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest it was to say if anyone thirst let him come to me and drink Making disciples is the heart of Jesus' heart. He put on mortal flesh to do it. He lived a perfect and a sinless life for it. He bore every burden of judgment for it. And when the time came, he put every bit of his authority behind it. There will be a day of judgment. And those who are children of wrath will be cast into outer darkness for eternity. And God will be just and righteous and glorified for doing it. But God's perfect love towards his people has not changed though. Mm -hmm. And he desires that they all come back to him. That is why he made a way. And that is why he sent his missionaries, you and me, into the world to tell them before it's too late. God is passionate about making disciples. And if God is passionate about it, and he has commanded us to do it, it stands to reason that you and I ought to be passionate about it as well. Which leads me, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. And while you're turning, I'll say this. I gave you all that because I want you to see clearly God's heart and the great compassion that he has for those who are lost. There are those who will, will try to tell you that God does not care for the lost. I mean, and they will tell you that. God only loves His children. He deeply loves the lost. And there will be a day when the lost will be cast into outer darkness, Amen. and justly so. Amen. Amen. But He loves them. Amen. I gave you all that I want you to, because I want you to see His heart for them. 
I know I've harped on it quite a bit over the last few weeks. I don't think I can emphasize it enough. In John chapter 4, we have this fascinating account where Jesus makes a special trip to Samaria, or through Samaria, actually, and he stops at Jacob's well. He's tired, and he's hungry, and so he tells the disciples to go on ahead and to get some food while he takes a rest at the well. And you know the story. This is the story of this, the woman at the well. There's a Samaritan woman, and she comes to draw water in the middle of the day. It's the sixth hour, so it's about noon. And there's this very tender and at the same time this very miraculous exchange that happens between the two of them where Jesus reveals her sin to her, and he also reveals himself to be the Messiah. And she is filled with faith, this saving faith in this man she's just met, Jesus. So let's pick up here in verse 25. The woman says to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, I want you to pay attention to what is happening and who who is there and what is happening when they are there. Okay? And then Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples come back. So they... They appear, they they show up right as this is happening, okay? And they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, who do you see? They didn't say anything to her. Or, why are you talking with her? They didn't say anything to Jesus about the woman. So the woman left her water jar, full of water, and then went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. So the disciples, they saw the end of this exchange. That's what the Bible says. Just then they showed up. Right as they were finishing this conversation. So they saw this exchange happening. They saw this woman's gleeful, joyful departure. I mean, just this this release that she has. And she runs into town. She's... Full of, she's so excited, she's left her water jars there at the well. She's running into town, and she's, she's calling out, come and see this man who's told me everything I've ever done. Is this not the Christ? Could this be the Christ? The crowds are gathering. The crowds are gathering, and they're worried about food. Amen. Amen. I mean, Jesus is sitting here watching her go. And he's probably got this grin on his face from ear to ear. Amen. There she goes. Amen. Look at her. You know how you watch your kids when they play in sports or they're in a concert, they're doing well. They're up there reciting a poem or something, and you just, you, I just, I just went to get Brianna in Tennessee for her to bring her home for Thanksgiving. And uh, I was lucky enough that while I was there, they had their winter concert. And so I got to watch her concert. And um, I couldn't stop grinning. Because, I mean, though she's one piece of a hundred-person orchestra, I mean, my daughter's playing. And it may as well have been just her up there. And though they all did great, didn't she do so good? She may have been the only one. 
But, so she's running into town, and I'm, Jesus just said, look at her, look at her go. She's good, look at her, she's doing good. Oh, they're all, she's got them all. Look at them, they're all gathering. She's doing, look at them, they're good. They're coming. Here they come, here they come. Here they come. He's watching them, and the disciples are gathering. Look at them, here they come. And do, do they notice it? This woman. Oh. Here are the disciples. Rabbi, eat something. Food, meat, good, hot. Food. <laughs> Look at verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. I have food that you don't know about. So the disciples said one to another, who brought him something to eat? They're still worried about food. <laughs> Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So he, I mean, he's essentially brushing them off and you know, he's loving as a teacher to do it. Um, and this is important. There's important work to be done. And as long as he's doing the important work that the Lord has sent him to do, God will sustain him. Now, I could spend all day, I could spend weeks on that right there, to be honest with you, but that's not my point this morning. My point is what Jesus says next, verse 35. I'm sustained by what God has sent me to do, and as long as I'm doing, boy, man, <laughs> as long as I'm doing what God has sent me to do, he'll get me through, all right? As long as I'm doing what he sent me to do, he'll go, he's going to get me through. I don't matter what, doesn't matter what, he's going to get me through. Come hell or high water, God will get me through. It doesn't matter what, God's going to get me as long as I'm doing what he sent me to do. So, verse 35, do you not say there are yet, it's almost as if he said, look, do you not say there are yet four months until the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Amen. Amen. Now, <clears throat> excuse me. Most of you have probably heard this passage preached several times in your life. Most of you have been in church for many years. So you've probably heard this passage preached a number of times. And, and as you've heard it preached, this is one of the essential evangelical passages in the New Testament and is rightly preached in such a way as to convey the right now nature of the harvest. The time is now for gathering. The time for evangelism and missions is right now. We don't need to wait. We don't need to procrastinate. We need to get out there and do do it now. And all that, that's good. The, 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 the narrower context seems to suggest that. That's great. I mean, J Jesus does begin uh, with a question about, you know, don't you say the harvest is four months away and the, well, the fields are white for harvest. We need to be witnessing now. We need to be spreading the gospel now. The harvest is ready now. And then in verse 36 through, through 38, he says, talks about how the you know, one sows and, a, and another reaps. You know, there are seeds that are planted over here and, and there are fruit that's, that's uh, harvested over here. So seeds that are sown when you were 12 are harvested maybe when you're, you're 20. And, uh, you know, because God sends laborers into the field when you're 20 and he sends sowers in the field when you're 12. Aren't you glad that God sent laborers into the field later in life and sowers into your field when you were earlier in life? So you thought that, when you met someone when you were later in life, 
that, that brought you to Jesus Christ, you thought they were the sower, but you, they were only the reaper. It was your grandma that was praying over you when you were eight, Amen. and the sower, the reaper, was the one who met you when you were 20. Amen. It was the Sunday school teacher that taught you the Beatitudes when you were five, and it was the reaper who brought you to Jesus when you were 25. I'm just saying. So, so sowing and reaping happens all the time, every day, all day, every day. And that's, that, and that's the broader context. And, and that, I'm behind that 100%. I don't want to take away from that at all. That's always taught, and that's good, and that's how, probably how you've always heard that taught. That, and that, that's a wonderful teaching. It's a faithful and accurate teaching of, of that text. But I, I don't want to take away from that one bit. But Scripture is not one-dimensional. These are not comic book characters. This is not a soap opera. There are layers. There are intricacies there's there's more to it than that church can i just suggest to you that our problem has never been with the timing of the harvest our problem with the church has and i know that's how it's always been preached i get that i understand that i know that's how you've always heard it and that's fine but our problem has never been with the timing of the harvest our problem with the church has always been the seeing of the harvest it's not that we don't know where we're supposed to go it's not that we don't know that we're supposed to be out there to to do it it's that we have gotten our eyes off of the target. We can't see the target. Jesus said, look, lift up your eyes and see. They're there right in front of you. Can I just take you through the text just a minute? And I think you'll see what I see. Because it's all about seeing. Thank you, brother. Jesus just met this Samaritan woman. He's an unbelieving woman. A woman who was living in great sexual immorality. Jesus is the one who spoke to her first. He broke all the protocols. How many of us would even dare to do that? Break social norms to go speak to someone we're not supposed to speak to. We won't even cross social barriers. We won't cross the aisle to talk to somebody we don't know. In that conversation, he changed her heart. He changed her life. He changed her from a child of wrath to a child of God. Now, granted, he is the Christ. But it just takes a conversation. And now this changed person, this new child of God, she's running into the town to tell the children of wrath the message of hope and they're coming to see. See, they're all sinners in need of a Savior because seeds have been planted. They've already heard the stories about the Messiah and now she's going to reap a harvest. See, see, seed time and harvest time. There's a harvest that's ready, that's ripe. She's, she's already gone in and Jesus is watching this happen. There's a seed that's been planted and now he's talking about already the seeds have been planted and already I'm reaping a harvest from a seed that was planted years ago. Look, lift up your eyes and see. Can't you see the harvest? And they're all worried about food. Now is it wrong of them to be worried about food? Jesus had to eat. We got to eat. They're so worried about the food. See, she went to deliver to them a grace that she had just been shown. Amen. Amen. Yes. The disciples came back, the recipients of that same grace that she had just been shown. Mm-hmm. Here all these people are in need of that grace that the disciples already had, the, one, the grace that the woman had been shown that she was so excited to deliver. They come back. Jesus says, look. You see in verse 35? After he asks them the question, he says, he tells them to do something. He says, look, you look with your eyes. Look, I tell you. And then he says, lift up your eyes. Again with the eyes. And see once more with the eyes. The problem isn't that we're not on mission. They were on mission. They were with Jesus. 
they were going to get him some food. They had, I mean, you've got to eat, right? We've got to eat. We have to keep the business going. We've got to keep the doors open. We've got to keep the, the ministry going. We've got to keep the programs going. We've got to keep the Sunday school going. Right? We've got to keep it going. The van's got to be repaired. The building's got to be maintained. We've got to keep it going. But in the process of doing, they lost sight of the target. It's not that we, we're not on mission, it's that we just don't see the target, we don't see the lost. He said, look, open your eyes and see. The fields are there, the people are there. We have to open our eyes and see that they are there, that the field is ready for harvest, and that's the problem. It's not a timing issue. He said, you say it's four months for the harvest. I say, open your eyes. Amen. Open your eyes, they're there. The field is ready for harvest, that's the problem. You're not looking, you're not seeing, you're too busy. You're so caught up in doing the business of ministry, you lost sight of the target. How many of us would have sat at that well with that woman and just watched her draw water and never said a word? Just flipped through our phones. There's all this commotion going on. The crowds are gathering. Now listen, this is the well and don't, don't confuse the language because it says she ran into town. This is not like Powderly to Paris. This is the well for the town. They were close proximity. They could very easily see and hear what was going on. Okay? So there's all this commotion going on. Crowds are gathering. The disciples knew what was going on, but they didn't see. Mm-hmm. Amen. They didn't see. They were blinded by their own indifference, too busy mm-hmm. to notice. What was more important? Jesus clearly knew, I'm about my Father's work. This food, we can eat any time. We can eat any time. Let it wait. This right here is the harvest. Amen. Amen. There's a man that I know. I don't, I don't know him well, but I know his son, Michael. We work together, and so I hear a lot of stories. A lot of stories about Michael's dad. Um, he's an honorable man, and more importantly, he's a godly man. He... Uh, takes this mission very seriously and he sees people he sees them he sees the field is white for harvest and he sees that people are in desperate need of a savior he sees that they are utterly lost without Jesus and he is motivated and moved with compassion to set aside his own pride to take the keys to the kingdom of heaven that Jesus has given to him and to open the doors for anyone that he can, anywhere that he can. He has led his life faithfully trying to listen to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit and do what it says. So when he feels like the Holy Spirit is telling him to go and speak to a total stranger, in the grocery store aisle. That's exactly what he does. He'll go up to someone in the grocery store and say, you know, this may sound odd to you, but I feel like the Lord is telling me that I need to ask you if there's something that you'd like for me to pray with you about. Or he may say, I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you that he's looking out for you. 
or that he is with you or that everything's going to be okay. Whatever. Whatever the spirit he feels like he's supposed to. And people will break down in tears in the middle of the grocery store and cry. People will tell him his life, their life stories. He will lead people to Jesus Christ in the middle of Walmart. This happens over and over again because he sees them. He sees them. He's looking. See, he approaches the harvest. The, the Bible says, Jesus said that the Son of Man comes to <laughs> seek and save the lost. We cannot save. Only Jesus can save, but we can seek. And he told us to do as much. He said, look, lift up your eyes and see. And so he is looking for the harvest. He sees people as harvest. And he's always asking, what is, what is my role here, Lord? What is my role? What would you have me do? What would you have me do? And he puts aside his pride. And I know he gets rejected. There are times when people say, no, man, I don't want to talk to you. That's kind of weird. But I also know that if he's rejected a hundred times, it's okay. If people laugh at him a hundred times, it's okay for that one. For that one. Because he knows that they are utterly lost without him. And he knows the joy that awaits that one who says, yes. Yes, Lord, yes. We've talked about him a lot in terms of confidence in the Holy Spirit and the things like stepping out in faith and stuff like that. And in preparing for this message, he kept coming to my mind. Um, the more I thought about it and prayed about it, I, I don't believe it is confidence or his confidence in listening to that small voice that, that brought him to mind. That's not confidence that drives him in those situations, church. It's compassion. It's compassion. He has compassion for others and he's looking beyond his own needs to lift up his eyes out into the field and see the harvest. So I'm going to ask you a tough question. How many people has God brought into your lives that you have not really seen? Forget the strangers just for a minute because not everyone can do that. I, shoot, I have a hard time talking to people that I know. <laughs> Carry on conversations with people that I know. I'm not a word guy, says the preacher. <laughs> um, so forget strangers, but there are people in your own life that do not know the Lord. And how often do we just agree to get along? Because it's uncomfortable. But have you made it known, hey, I'm here, if you ever want to have that conversation, do they know beyond the shot? Do they know that you're a, a believer? Have you made that clear? Hey, I'm a Christian and there is a better way. And man, if you ever want to talk about that, I would love to have that conversation with you. And do you remind them? Or have we just agreed to go along? And that's part of compassion. Because it comes to that, that idea that, you know, if you saw your, your brother about to jump off a cliff or headed for a deadly situation, what would you do to stop them? 
How many people has God brought into your life that you've not really seen? I, I feel like we fail our friends and our loved ones because we simply aren't looking. We won't look, lift up our eyes, and see that the field is white for harvest. And I would challenge you today, as Jesus did his disciples, to do just that, to look, lift up your eyes, and see. We don't have a timing problem. We're on mission. We have a target problem. We have a seeing problem. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus once more at the end of this message, Lord, and I, I thank you for your word and I pray that it has settled on our hearts and that we can walk away with joy knowing that you have pricked us um, and spurred us on to good and better works. Father, help us to see with compassion those that are around us, especially those who are lost and who need to know the love and the light that you have waiting for us. Give us a holy boldness, Lord, to speak with compassion your truth and your gospel into their lives. Father, protect us as we leave here from the pestilence that is out there. Protect those who we love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.